Good morning, everyone. Welcome to everyone here in the room and joining us online. Uh, very big welcome uh, for me to the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, and I'm director of the Institute. And I'm delighted you've joined us all here today uh, for this conversation with Sajid Javid. Um, before we kick off, just a few uh, housekeeping points. We'll be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Center. So do uh, use that if you want to wish to tweet. If you haven't been put off using Twitter by uh, Elon Musk's antics over the weekend. Um, do send in any questions. If you're joining us online, you can do that using the Slido screen, the panel on the right of your screen. Um, and we will have a video and sound recording of the event on our website within 24 hours. So as you will all know, Sajid Javid uh, is a, a, has held some of the most senior roles in British government, uh, having been Home Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and uh, a Secretary of State in six government departments. Um, and we're really delighted that he, he said he's going to stand down at the next uh, election, uh, but he's joined us here today, and uh, we're particularly delighted that he's joined our Centre Commission, which is a one-year project which we have set up to think about how the centre of government works in, in the UK, how number 10, the Treasury and the Cabinet Office work together, whether they're working as well as they can. And we're planning to come up with some proposals, some conclusions by February next year, uh, which hopefully will inform everyone's thinking ahead of the next election. And we're really pleased to have Sajid's wealth of experience uh, brought to that commission. So today we're going to be just starting to draw out some of that experience uh, with some, some questions from me. Um, and then there'll be an opportunity for everyone in the room and, as I've said, everyone online to throw in, in their questions. So, welcome, Sajid. Thank you. Um, a very nice, easy one to start with. What do you think works well about the centre of our government and what could work better? Well, thank you. First, thanks for having me. And I thought you said at the start in the introduction that you, you were delighted that I, uh, I decided to stand down. Oh, no. Uh, so. <laughs> I didn't know that delight of the IFG, but anyway. Um, the, what works well and what doesn't at the centre of government? Look, I, I think that um, the, obviously one of the reasons you've set up the commission and that why I'm supporting it is I think there, it, there are definitely improvements that can be made in how government in the UK is run, central government. Um, but it's good to sort of uh, just to start off with what works well, uh, because there's a lot that goes right in our country. You know, we're under you know, successive governments. The, you know, we're the fifth, sixth largest economy in the world that generates you know, hundreds of billions in taxation that pays for things that you know, so many people rely on, from education to health to social protection to defense and fighting crime and all of that. And, and I know that it's, uh, it's you know, just thinking about my constituents as a constituency MP, that, uh, they're, they're, that we can always find fault with lots of that. And there, are, there is bits and pieces of that that are clearly we need to massively improve on. Um, but uh, you know, I think when you certainly compare to some of those to other countries and things, there's, there's a lot that goes right. And, uh, and also just the, the um, you know, how fierce our democracy is in terms of um, the, obviously the, the electoral competition, a uh, you know, whole sort of the broad system of democracy in this country. I mean, there's a lot that, 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 that works uh, well. Uh, in terms of um, you know, what's not going uh, so well is, uh, maybe we get into some of this in, in, in a bit later, but I, I mean, I just say like two or three things immediately just from my experience, I would say, that you know, having worked in the, you know, in those different departments and you know, some of you mentioned, but also for three different uh, prime ministers, that uh, I think first of all I'd say that, that the prime minister's office 
is is uh, not as uh, sort of strong and um, um, expert in things as, as I think it should be in a, in a country the size of ours with all the responsibilities that government has. Uh, obviously, the, the Prime Minister of the day has an office and there's lots of people in it and there's lots of good people uh, in that. But given the, if you, when you compare that to the, the sort of the awesome set of responsibilities, the overall size of government, the size of individual departments, I think it's very hard for the Prime Minister of the day with the support that he or she has uh, to sort of stay on top of things and push the sort of the Prime Minister's uh, priorities. Um, the, the second, uh, I, I would say that um, we don't do cross-government working well you know, between departments. So you know, obviously I've been in many different departments and things, and obviously each department has its own priorities, as you would expect. But some of those priorities are clearly government priorities, and they can only be properly met or efficiently met if the rest of government, you know, other government departments, are also doing their bit. You know, Take health, for example. I was a big champion of uh, more preventative health care. But to do that, you know, it's not just the health department. You need the education department. You need the culture department. You need the welfare department. So, you know, how do we do better across uh, government? And then the last thing that comes to my mind is, you know, how can we improve things at the centre of government is broadly put, I'd say, talent. You know, and I'm not just, obviously, there's that, that starts with you at the ministerial level. You know, how do you, you know, some ministers are good at their jobs, some are not very good at their jobs. And, and uh, you know, but then if you work your way through the system, you know, I think we're, we're blessed with fantastic civil servants. And I think that overall, my experience with civil servants has been very good. And uh, I think the vast majority are, are very good. And I'd be, you know, proud that they serve the way they serve our country. But there are also some, like in any big organization, that are not very good. And, uh, and it's really hard to fire a bad civil servant. It's almost impossible. Um, and, uh, and then also, finally, on talent, that uh, we clearly need experts in government as well. You know, most civil servants are, are generalists. Most MPs and, and therefore ministers are generalists. We need experts, um, you know, especially if you look at some areas like today, a lot of discussion around AI and technology and things and health and things. You need experts. And, uh, and I don't think that we are, at the moment, necessarily always attracting the best experts in an area, uh, not least because the, 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 the public sector as a whole is not willing to pay enough for those experts. Right, there's lots of excellent material for us to get our teeth into there. That's really interesting. Um, but I mean, I, I guess the starting point is to say none of those problems are new. So the IFG's Centre Commission is obviously hoping to come up with some new ideas and thinking about, about how to tackle them. But we have known that some of these things haven't worked at the centre for, for, for a long time. And so why do you think it's so difficult to, to address these problems? Why haven't we solved them before now? Why, why do we need a Centre Commission? Uh, because... First, you're right. I mean, none of those are really new, and uh, and uh, why you know, why they sort of why do they prolong um, as they do? I think that one thing is I think that whenever a prime minister comes into office, they will have their set of priorities, and and they're in a bit of a rush yeah. to get things done. Yeah. So even if they've come at the start of a, you know they've just won an election, so they're a new prime minister, they've got maximum five years to, to, to make a difference and, and then get the next verdict of the electorate. And, and that, I think, uh, five years might sound like a long time, but if you, I, 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 I think that 
when you sort of um, arrive at number 10 and, and then someone presents you with these problems and things, or maybe you already know about these issues, and you start thinking, well, okay, we're going to have a machine or a government change, we're going to get more experts in, we're going to do this, then someone else will say, not without some merit, say, well, if you're spending so much time changing around the machinery of government, what about your pledges? Because no one voted for you because you said, you know, I'm going to have more, you know, better committees, I'm going to pay public servants more and things like that. Like, none of this stuff I'm talking about is in your manifesto. You might have some vague line about making government work better, but you don't have a section of this in your manifesto. You're going to be focused on your, your commitments. Uh, and then when, especially then, that's a, that's a prime minister at the start of a term, when then you have prime ministers, as we've seen recently, like three prime ministers in less than a year, and now with an election, you know, less than, you know, two years away, the, you know, the priority is sort of delivery rather than dealing with these issues. And, and, and I think there's always a sense that, you know, these, there's, yes, these are real issues, but we can sort of, we'll come back to this at, yeah. at some later date, but you never really do. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is, is, that the unexpected happens and yeah. we've seen and you've been in government mm. through a really tumultuous period with first Brexit and then COVID. What's, what lessons did you take away about um, how government deals well with those situations and perhaps where the centre could do better um, and, and, and where we should be focusing our, our thinking about when, when there's a crisis underway rather than the business as usual, which mm. you, know, you think you're coming into government to, to deal with. How could the centre be, be more effective there? Yeah, well, I, I think that um, yeah, if you take those sort of recent challenges, even if we go back a bit further, the most recent sort of crises in certainly in our memories, you know, start with the financial crisis and then, uh, then of course, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic and then to some extent the war uh, in Europe as well. Um, that in, if you look at government response to crises, it, it does get the machine going and working in a much more sort of flexible, even innovative way that doesn't normally happen. And, um, and, 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 and I don't know whether you're pointing to this, but I've often just thought that, you know, how can you sort of harness that sort of um, what happens in a crisis and, and make it, you use that sort of energy to, 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 to have that kind of, let's say, more radical or more you know, flexible approach during more normal times. And, uh, and, I, and I think that just, you know, if you, again, if you just take the COVID uh, crisis, that, I mean, there was a lot there that the government did because it was such a big crisis that it sort of almost threw the, the sort of normal sort of rule book, the normal approach out the door and said, look, okay, if we're going to get you know, a vaccine, then let's go and, you know, sign up for eight, nine vaccines and see which one works. I mean, the Treasury would never have done anything like that in a million years but without a crisis like that. Or, uh, or the, um, the sort of retention program, salary retention program, what the size of that, how quickly it happened, and, and all of that. Um, it's, but I, I think probably the answer to your question, why don't we sort of see more sort of uh, energy like that in more normal times? I think just when the crisis is gone, there's just no driving force uh, to, to, to make such radical change. And also, actually thinking about it, I think... I think in government, within government, you think, well, it, you know, when you take a more radical, more sort of out-of-the-box approach, it's, a, it's, it's in some sense, it's a riskier approach, right? Mm -hmm. But you can justify it to the public, right? Yeah. You know, so, you know, it would look at the, again, take the vaccine example. We invested in eight, nine different vaccines, only ended up using a couple of them. You know, someone might say, well, hold on a minute, didn't you waste money on the other six or seven? 
Um, but then the government can turn around and say, look, if I hadn't done that, I didn't know which one was going to work. You know, so, and, and there's a really good sort of argument that most sort of you know, people would accept. But outside of a crisis, it's really hard to justify that because in, 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 in government, it's, um, it's, it's quite risk averse. Civil servants are risk averse. Ministers become risk averse. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, without the, the, the crisis, then it just makes it harder to sort of explain to the public why you took a, a riskier than otherwise approach. Yeah, I think it's interesting, although I think there's a question about whether we now need to see dealing with crisis as a sort of permanent capability of the centre, because particularly with the climate crisis, it seems likely that there are going to be more unexpected events, things that the centre is going to have to yeah. deal with, and that rather than seeing it as an aberration, as what you do when you stop, actually that needs to be a permanent capacity at the centre, yeah, which no, is what we you're are, talking about. We are, of... Yeah, I, I think, yeah, again, we, we talked about some of the crises that are, that are the, the best known and some of the, the, the most... Um, impactful but you know if I think of my time in government when I mean, we used to have a lot of COBRA meetings right because it'd be like a, a crisis or a mini sort of crisis or issue when I was home secretary we you know, with the Salisbury poisonings yeah. you know we had you know just take that we had regular meetings of of, of COBRA uh, and 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 that led to you know the whole government machine especially with the COBRA meeting mm. right because you you're literally in this room Typically, the prime minister's chairing it, or then as home secretary, I might be chairing it, but you have to come to this meeting. There's no ifs, ands, and buts. The whole sort of cabinet secretariat is, is working towards it, producing the agenda. It's the only meetings, and I'll just take that example in government that I've known, I've ever experienced, where as you make decisions, there are there's a, there's screens around the room, live screens, and someone's typing away, and the action points are appearing. As you, so you're just agreeing to those actions as they're appearing. And if you've got, if you're Secretary of State and you've got a, you, know, you look at the screen and there's some, you know, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4 as they're appearing, if you've got any different view, you've got to say it there and then. Otherwise, as soon as you leave that meeting, those things will be actioned and your you, the Secretary of State won't even have to tell the department, the Cabinet Office will do it. And it just happens, right? Uh, now, obviously, you can't take such an approach to everything, you know, tackling homelessness or serious violence and things like that, which require cross-government approaches, to take those two as an example. Uh, but there, the, you know, there is a method that already exists in government that, that in crisis or mini-crisis, that we can make the whole machine work a lot more smoothly. And I think we've got to try and find ways to harness that. So when you were in line departments, so you, you had a number of jobs in the Treasury, yeah. but um, when you were... were in a department looking at the centre. Um, how, do, how does that feel? What, is, what, is, how, how, what do you need from the centre as a line department and what do you get at the moment? Is there any mismatch there? Yeah, there is. Uh, yeah, so first of all, what, what do you need when you're running a line department? You, well, I'll put the Treasury aside. Is it different to most departments? Yeah. And you might want to come to that later. But with all the other departments, you know, the spending departments, or all the five departments around the uh, spending departments, and obviously you've got some clear objectives. So when you become Secretary of State of a department, you know, you'll have, you would have inherited some objectives. You know, you're, 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 there might be some in your sort of manifesto that are you know, like the sort of uh, almost non-negotiable. Um, but you will also have your own sense of priorities. I mean, every Secretary of State uh, does. And, 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 and I think that, Basically, you sort of try to work on all those, and you don't, most secretaries, I think, would try not to involve the centre 
unless they have to. Right? Um, it's not. Uh, it, uh, it, the departments feel you know quite a sort of um, separate from obviously they're part of central government, but. It, the, the, there's, it goes back to my point of lack of cross-government working, is that most departments, you know, obviously you've got your Secretary of State, all your civil servants answer only to that Secretary of State, and um, you, you're, you're even, you're, you're, you will obviously have junior ministers in the department, you have your SPADs and things, but you know, you're, as a team, you typically sort of come to an understanding of what the priorities are for your department, how to, to, to um, you focus on those. So you don't tend to, I think, go to the centre unless you really need the centre. And now it depends also on what we mean by the centre, because the department that you will go to a lot is the Treasury, right? Which is not the same thing as going to Airport. number ten, yeah. right? And uh, and and that is probably the, the department uh, that I'd actually think of it as a for other for spending departments as, as a central department as the, part of the centre, uh, but as almost. Uh, you know, you've got the Prime Minister's office you're dealing with and you've got the Treasury you're dealing with. And as a Secretary of State, you have to deal with both. But I think you'll probably have more interaction with the Treasury uh, because, you know, you can't, you can't spend any money without the Treasury's approval. You won't get the budget. And even if it's not a spending money issue, the Treasury is the one department that, even if it's a, a new rule or regulation you want to introduce, got nothing to do with money. If the Treasury doesn't like it or, or really wants to see it happen, it has a you know, a huge degree of influence on you. So I think most Secretary States will have you know, much more sort of direct relationship uh, with the Treasury. And do you think that, that the way that Secretary of State tend to approach that militates against cross-government working? So if you're involving the centre less, then... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. And that, you know, they, there are just so many challenges for each department that are cross-government, right? And so, um, well, I could take so many during my time, you know, serious violence. So when I was Home Secretary, you know, sadly, you know, knife crime and thing was, was, had been rising for a long time. How do we tackle that? Obviously, it's the lead for the Home Office, but to actually deal with there's many other departments involved. If you think about the criminal justice system, you've got obviously the Justice Department, you've got the AG's office, uh, then you've got other department education for you know, trying to help young children that might get drawn to crime and things. So I set up a serious crime task force and had other ministers around the table as well as you know, people from outside government. And it had some you know, success and things, but it's really hard to get traction if you set it up yourself and things. You really need the centre, which means the Prime Minister, to, 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 to lead that and to, to set it up with you. If I give you another example where that happened is that when I was the local government secretary, um, I was determined to, to, to get rough sleeping down. We had a manifesto commitment, it just been going up and up, and it was obvious that it was just wasn't a cross-government priority. I went to see the Prime Minister of the day, which was Theresa May, convinced her that we need a, a sort of new ministerial committee that she's got to set up, her office is set up, and she should come to the first one and all this kind of stuff, and it did the trick. And, you know, we got all these departments agreed, uh, and they all did their bits, and, um, and, and it started to move the numbers in the right direction. But it, it's a huge amount of effort to do that. Now, it's worth the effort, but the thing is you can't do that for every single yep. party you've got. So you sort of think you want a better mechanism uh, for cross-government working so it becomes more of a norm. Turning to your time at the Treasury, do you think there is such a thing as Treasury orthodoxy, um, and is it a problem? 
Uh, yes, there is. Uh, as in, if you mean treasury author, is there like a, 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 a sort of common way of thinking or approaching uh, issues? You said, is it a problem? I think it, it depends um, you know, what, when people say treasury orthodoxy, it seems to me it's sort of, sometimes it's a sort of catch-all thing when, and often it's like someone's not getting what they want. But sometimes there can be a good reason for that. So let me explain that, you know, if, if, if by treasury orthodoxy, you know, some people are sort of saying, ah, well, you know, they're really difficult with spending and they're not raising this tax or to give me more money or whatever. Whereas often no department is saying raise a tax, by the way, right? So I'd start, the treasury is the only department that raises money. Every other department is a spending department, including Dum 10, right? So the treasury, the only, you know, the chancellor is the only person sitting there thinking, where's this money going to come from? And obviously there are consequences when you raise money, right? You either raise taxes or you raise debt, but there are sort of bigger consequences to that if that gets or feels it might get out of control. So, you know, if by treasury orthodoxy people mean so that the treasury is always sort of looking to sort of balance the books in the medium term, let's say, I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? Because someone's got to look out for balancing the books. Because imagine that that kind of orthodoxy didn't exist, you'd have a constant financial crisis, right? And, and, and let's take a more recent example when yeah, the, I mean, I, I'm certain that the, the Treasury would have told you know, Liz Truss when she was in office that you know, if you go out with a budget that's going to blow the deficit and without any sort of narrative, any sort of you know, laying the ground or um, the, any plans to bring that under control, even over the long term, you know, the markets are not going to like it. Right? Gonna, you're going to get a massive negative reaction. The Treasury would have that's orthodoxy at work. And, and she ignored it. And the country pay the consequences. Um, but there are aspects, I would also say, that of Treasury Orthodox, where I think um, it's, it does need to be more flexible, right? And that's not the balancing the books bit, although there is a relationship. And that is, um, I, I think that the way the Treasury looks at um, um, investment, and especially sort of any, any genuine things that a government could do basically to invest to save, right? So what could you do uh, that might be upfront cost now more than the Treasury had anticipated, but will genuinely lead to savings? And I, I can give you so many examples of where you know, that, that would make sense. You know, health department, the NHS is the biggest budget in the, in the, in the government. Uh, it's obvious that hospitals need more investment, we need more capital equipment, and uh, we, need to, we should be investing more in technology there, right? And it will definitely save money in the long term. If all hospitals had electronic patient records, it will definitely save money in the long term. The challenge the Treasury always has with that is that the long term for them is five years, right? maximum, right? And, uh, and those savings, if they're gonna come eight, nine, 10 years down the line, it's the, the, it's just the, the interest just falls away. And, and, and the chancellor of the day is often just pushed to sort of how are you going to manage those books over the next few years. And so I do think that, uh, that, that, that there should be a sort of proper look at changing the approach to sort of longer term investment. And I think also, now someone else might say, listening to that thing, well, hold on, wouldn't that lead to more boring now or something? And, and I think that that can be managed as long as it, it was explained, and, and again, you've got to lay the groundwork, you know, set out your plans, uh, take the time to do that to, to, so that markets understand why this is actually long-term going to lead to less debt 
mm. not, um, not more debt. Um, and I, so I think there are ways to, to do that. But whenever you sort of approach that in the Treasury, again, it's sort of, there's just too many forces that just say, look, that's not the approach. It's not how we've done it. Um, and um, I think that's a bit of a problem. And then just to finish on that, I think that there's a, there, there is an issue around how Treasury uh, account, accounting works in that you, know, you have the sort of the day-to-day -day spending is called resource spending. Any sort of broadly sort of long-term uh, spending is capital spending, but those distinctions aren't very clear. You know, so they are clear in some areas. If you build a road, that's clearly capital spending. But what if you want to invest more in skills? You know, is that capital? Is that day-to-day -day resource spending? And the Treasury can make changes, but it's not just up to the Treasury. And that's the final point. So it's up to the ONS. And obviously, that's completely independent, as it should be. And I'll give you a more recent example. In the last few years, the Treasury was able to convince the ONS to change how R&D spending is accounted for. Now, 80% roughly of R&D spending is capital spending, whereas go back 10 years, and it used to be all resource spending. And that was a very sensible change, but it took years to convince the ONS to do that. So you, there are some issues there. And when you were Chancellor, do you feel like you were part of that Treasury orthodoxy and upholding it on behalf of, of government? Or were there times, can you give any examples of when you sort of had to push back against it from, from within? Um, I think all chancellors, again, I think it depends what, what aspect of, there's not one single orthodoxy. So as, as chancellor, did I want to make sure that, you know, it's certainly in the medium we're balancing the books, that we have fiscal rules off? Absolutely, right? I mean, no chancellor should want anything different. Right? in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of self-evident that you've got to be able to manage the books. Uh, but uh, your question was, that, did, did I challenge all? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I, could, I did it in my first time in the Treasury, right? Was, as soon as I arrived in the Treasury, it was, um, that was uh, uh, you know, a few years back as the economic secretary. That was my first role in the Treasury. And uh, one of the things I saw in my sort of, uh, sort of objectives was uh, the, the government had for a long while, governments had wanted to issue a, a, a British government Islamic bond, like called the Sukuk is referred, but sovereign Islamic bond. And, and, and Gordon Brown had tried it and not proceeded. And, and, and before I arrived and George Osborne had looked at it and not proceeded. And so I took some interest in this, not least because I'd come from working in finance. And one of the areas that I ran for the bank I worked for was Islamic financing unit. So I thought I know a bit about this. And so, anyway, we looked at this, and, uh, and the bottom line, the Treasury would always kill it because they'd give advice uh, to the minister and then ultimately to the chancellor that would say that, that this bond would have to pay a higher interest rate than regular gilts because it's, uh, it's structured and it's, uh, it's going to be highly illiquid and you have to pay a liquidity premium and all that. And so they'd say you have to pay an extra one, one and a half percent. And obviously, that, from a taxpayer's point of view, that's not a good outcome, right? But they were wrong. Right? I was absolutely convinced they were wrong. And not only did I believe they were wrong, I believe that actually you end up paying maybe slightly less interest. And that's because they weren't pricing in something called scarcity value, right? And because the UK would have, at that point, been the only, the only you know, um, major industrialized nation to issue a, a, a you know, this type of bond. And uh, the Treasury wouldn't change its advice and things. And they were saying, if you want to do this, you've got to get the Chancellor to issue a direction. Otherwise, we're not going to do it. So eventually, I asked to meet the, uh, the Perm Sec, who was Nick McPherson at the time. 
and I took him through all, every, like, all my reasoning. And ultimately, he, he sort of agreed, but he said, this is your risk, right? If this doesn't work out, you know, you know, you could lose your job. You've just started in the Treasury. You know, you could, you know, this is not a good start if you get the wrong way. So then I had to go and see George Osborne, and then he said, are you absolutely sure, Sajid? And I said, I'm absolutely sure that it will come less. Now, actually, looking back now, why would I stick my neck out something like that? I don't know. But I just, I just felt that this was not right, and uh, and we should do this, and and uh, I was right, and so anyway, long uh, end of the story is that we issued the bond, and uh, I'd said that it would come in about uh, 0.25 percent below treasuries. That was my estimate. Low. I was wrong. It was one percent below. Right. It was even cheaper. Uh, but my point was absolutely correct, and the Treasury accepted it. And then, and then uh, since then, they've issued a couple of these, right? And every time, I, you know, it's what I've said. But the point is that uh, that would never have happened if the Treasury hadn't been challenged. And for years, governments have been trying to do this, and, and the Treasury had been stopping it because of its orthodoxy. And the problem there, by the way, is that the Treasury is, uh, is full of tons of smart people, and they're, they're fantastic in so many ways, but they don't have much market experience and even the ones you'd expect that work in like markets departments and things they don't have that experience and so they don't uh, you know they don't have all that experience of how markets actually work and may think that's really interesting um i could go on asking you questions for a long time but i think i'm gonna have to give everyone else a go um we have a roving mic in the room so anyone who wants to ask a question uh let me know it'd be great if you could give us your name and where you're from because that's always interesting um, so we'll take a group of questions, and I'll also take some from online. So, Maddy, just right next to you there. Hello, Robert Shrimsey from the FT. I, I was just reflecting on your last point, Sajid, as to whether, in fact, therefore, the problem at the centre is ministers, not civil servants. If there aren't enough ministers who feel expert enough or able enough or have managerial experience enough to take on civil servants, how much of the problems that we have been describing are actually down to that? Um, Hi there, Ben Tretter from Nesta and the Behavioural Insights team. I'm just wondering if there's any other countries in your experience that you think get this really right and that you were kind of looking to when as a minister or at the centre and going, I wish we were structured like that. And if so, uh, what are they doing that's working so well? Do you want to take those two? Yeah. Actually, the, the, the... those, in my mind, those questions are connected. Yeah. In the, I mean, I do think there's a problem with the, the, the talent uh, of, of some ministers, right? Some ministers, I mean, some ministers, but, uh, definitely I can think of ministers that, that are absolutely suited to the job and the right person at the right time and all that, but also the opposite is true. And, and of course, ultimately, the minister is leading the department, certainly the Secretary of State, and if they're not suited to that job, then you know I wouldn't. You know, no one would expect much uh, out of the department. Uh, so that is an issue, but uh, it's it's a really hard one uh, to crack. In that, because why does that happen? Is because for every prime minister of any political party over decades, is that when you appoint ministers, you're not just thinking of talent. I mean, obviously it's a factor, but it's not the only factor. There's so many other factors that go into appointing those ministers. Um, and I'm not, uh, personally, I, I don't know how you would you change that in any sort of meaningful uh, way. Now, you could have a set of mitigants around that, you know, so if you, and this will happen, you're, there, there will be, you know, now and in the future, 
you know, there will be appointments of ministers that, you know, it, that a, a prime minister may even know is probably not the best person to do that job, but I've got to appoint him and her to that job. So you might build sort of, sort of mitigants around that, maybe with some stronger junior ministers, maybe more oversight of the department, maybe taking away some of the responsibilities of the department and putting it somewhere else. Uh, but but I, I, I accept that there is uh, an issue, and I, I think that's probably generally true of most uh, most countries, and certainly if we compare ourselves as we should to liberal democracies, I think it's probably an issue in most uh, countries. Um, the, now, there, there are different approaches to different countries, and just was linking it to, I think it was Ben's question, uh, and you know, some countries, you know, France, US, others, but let's look at European countries, perhaps a bit more comparable in, in terms of parliamentary democracies, where you can bring experts in, and uh, they, they are made ministers, so as you know, we don't do that. Um, uh, and and, and of the advantage, you, I think, is obvious that they're an expert. There's a disadvantage there as well. They're not elected. They have no constituents. It's hard for them to, in, in, in a parliament you know, to sort of uh, to answer questions in a way that, you know, that sort of uh, they can claim at least some knowledge of what the public might think. And no one's voted for them. They've been appointed. And so there are sort of pros and cons there. And if we did that in the UK, we might be having a different question about why are, why are unelected people being given so much power? Um, and, and then you, know, you asked me about other countries. I mean, I'll give you an example. This will never happen here. It won't happen in any other country. But you can see why it works in this particular country. That's Singapore. I was having a, a breakfast uh, a few weeks back with the uh, health minister of Singapore, a friend of mine. And I've known this about, I used to live in Singapore. I lived there three years before I came into politics. And I knew this at the time. And he just reminded me that, you know, that, uh, that, that ministers in Singapore, their cabinet, uh, their salaries are over a million dollars. Right? The PM salary there in Singapore is you know, $2 million. And similarly, with, with civil servants, uh, their size are very high. Now, the cost of living in Singapore is about the same as London. And so the, the salaries are huge. And what they do in Singapore is they index salaries of ministers and senior civil servants to the private sector. The PM salary there, for example, is indexed to CEO salaries. They take CEO salaries of the top companies in Singapore. And as those go up and down, the prime minister's salary moves up and down. And, and, and they get a very, very high quality uh, of people wanting to go into politics and wanting uh, to, to be ministers. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we should do that here, but there's a, there is something in that, in that you know, if, uh, you know, if, if you have a Secretary of State for Health that is uh, getting paid probably half the salary of, of the permanent secretary in the department and stuff. You know, they're, you know, that you're expecting people to do these jobs for something other than income, and a lot of people do that in the public sector as they should. But there's a there's a there's sort of there's a level where I think the, the the quality within government starts to suffer, and it's also with experts. I talked about uh, civil servant experts uh, as well. Uh, I think recently wasn't I think I saw some news about the Treasury, I think it was, was trying to hire an AI expert for something like 70,000 pounds or something like that. Now, 70,000 pounds, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of money, right? But it's not gonna get you an AI expert you know, when companies are paying 10 times that. So, and ultimately, people will suffer because you don't get the experts in government. So, I think salaries has something to do with it as well. I just wanted to sort of build on the, the point there that you're making and ask whether you think we should be worried that actually there's a lot of expertise uh, and experience that's going to leave Parliament, given the number of uh, MPs who've said, like yourself, that they're standing down. 
uh, just building on, on, yeah. on Robert's question, should we, we be worried that actually Parliament's going to lose a lot of expertise? Of course, we do bring people into the House of Lords and create precisely that unelected uh, expertise. You know, sometimes mm. people are brought into the House of Lords to be ministers um, because of their, of their expertise, but then we pay them even less than we pay MPs. So, I mean, we have yeah. the first of all... Yeah, I think, look, there, I mean, there are lots of reasons that MPs will be standing down, but one of the issues, not just in this parliament, in all the sort of, uh, as we get to the end of each parliament, obviously MPs leave and there'll be lots of reasons, but one of the reasons, uh, uh, I think, either either people leave or you know, more, you're not getting more sort of um, diverse background of people and in different professions and things as well, joining, wanting to join parliament, is, uh, is I think, salaries is an issue. Uh, the... Um, and MP salary is, I think, 87, 88,000 pounds at the moment. And again, it's a lot of money. It's more than double the national average. But you get what you pay for, right? You get what you pay for. You know, if you want, if people want to see uh, um, you know, GPs or, or nurses, or um, in, you know, senior nurses or uh, you know, head teachers uh, or an accountant, you know, give up their job to want to come into parliament, you know, they have to, going to take a massive fall in their lifestyle to do it. And a lot of people are not willing to do that. So, you know, you either get, you attend there to get in Parliament, therefore, either really rich people that don't need money and, and therefore they don't care if their salary is 88,000 or 28,000, or, or you will get people that were earning sort of 30,000, 80,000 is a big jump, but they might not come with the skills that Parliament needs. So if I had my way, I would half the number of MPs and double the salaries. Right? It wouldn't cost the taxpayer a penny and you'd get a much higher quality of Parliament and ministers. Some more questions in the room. I'll do this gentleman here and the lady here. So I was for some years one of those very expensive consultants. In fact, I was the most expensive consultant for many years working on the Giltswan, the thing that manages the national debt. Um, and I found a couple of things which, which I think need to be taken. One was the, the strange mode change between the senior civil servants when I was introduced as someone who understood the gilt market, had done economics and was a director of a bank. And when they discovered I was actually the chief technology officer of the bank, their attitude visibly changed between those who saw me as a technologist and therefore one of them um, and those that saw me as one of, amongst themselves. Um, which is, which is, the civil service seems to have developed what I first saw at IBM, which is a very commercial organization, that as an organization gets bigger and older, the ratio of effort that it is rational to spend looking good to other people in the organization, relative to the amount of effort to actually doing your job, gradually changes in looking good inwards. Mm. And a lot of the civil servants' behaviors, I noticed, which differentiated this from the bank, mostly, was that so much of it was to stay looking good. I mean, there is this talk of civil servants' agendas as if they're left or right or something. But there is just this general, if you want to fit in, if you want to be promoted, you have to be... Am I going to say you have to be white? Yeah, I'm just going to say this. You look at the diversity of the senior civil service and you compare it to the top tier of the Conservative Party, which is, when all is said and done, the right-wing party. The senior civil service has a lot of women. Any other sort of diversity really just disappears. So how do we alter the ratio of them looking, to them looking more out than inwards? I think that is, that is the hard question. Do you want to pass the... Mm. Long, and then we'll come forward to you. 
Hi, uh, Jessica Frankies from City AM. Um, I'd be interested to know your thoughts as a former Chancellor on the economic situation facing the country at the moment. What do you make of Rishi Sunak's approach as Prime Minister being 100% on it and urging people with mortgages to hold their nerve and of the performance of Andrew Bailey in tackling inflation? Thank you. There's a few questions there. <laughs> the lady in the front row. Oh, hello, uh, Sinead Bukata from My Rights UK. You said that government is risk averse, and we kind of know that, but you also said that there needs to be more of investing in technologies. So what's the way to s solve that? And what would be your commentary on the future of access to justice slash legal tech, health slash med tech from the perspective of government and what should startups do if they want to work more closely with the government? Thank you. Thank you. Right, yeah. Do you have questions there? Yeah, no, thank you. On the, you first turned to the gentleman's question. I mean, you know, there's a lot there, but your, your central point about diversity, I think, is absolutely right. In the, so I, I, I came into Parliament in 2010. By 2012, I was a minister and stuff. For almost 10 years, I've been working with you know, civil servants as, as the minister or the secretary of state. So a lot of contact with civil servants. And, and as I said earlier, I, I, as I said, the vast majority of civil servants I work with are, are, are very good people. They work really hard. They're very intelligent and stuff. And I, you know, I, was, I was happy, very happy with that uh, overall. But I think diversity is definitely a problem. It's improved. Uh, if I think back to my time in the Treasury when I first started, and even when I came back to the Treasury as Chancellor you know, many years later, I think diversity, uh, both in terms of um, uh, gender and, and racial and also social background, there are improvements. I remember as Chancellor, I meant uh, meeting civil servants really keen to show me uh, s some new people that had joined that all come through apprenticeship programs and come from different social backgrounds. And, uh, and they were keen to do that because when I was the economic secretary many years earlier, I was making a big issue of diversity and lack of diversity uh, in, in, in the treasury. Um, and, and that's the problem across the board. And I think it doesn't solve a lot of, you, know, you mentioned a lot of issues that result uh, from this. It may not necessarily solve all those, but I think you know, having a more diverse um, background civil servants and ministers uh, for, for that matter, um, it, it can only be, it can only help, it can only be a good thing that, that you get the, 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 um, the, the, the difference in ideas, you get more creativity, more innovation. And there are many programs now in the civil service to, to try and improve this. Uh, but I hope that one thing maybe this commission, the, the IFG commission can look at is how do you really turbocharge that? Because uh, it sort of almost feels like it hasn't kept up with what's happening in parliament. And in, 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 with ministers, uh, you know, the civil service hasn't really kept up with that s sense of change. On um, the, was it Jessica, the questions on uh, the economy. Look, obviously there's um, serious economic challenges. There are for us, there are around the world. Uh, I think the, the prime minister is right to, to set his priorities out sort of economically and you know, first is to make sure that the system overall, not just the government, but of course the Bank of England and everyone is doing everything that they can be reasonably doing to tackle inflation. And then also to, to focus on uh, growth uh, and to, to get the debt down. Now, those are really three, you, you, three massive uh, goals, but I think the Prime Minister set the right goals. 
Uh, I'm not going to sort of, it's too early for me or I think for anyone to say like whether all those goals will be achieved in the way the Prime Minister wants. Um, but I, I, I mean, broadly, I'm happy with the, the government's approach. Uh, and, um, and one thing we didn't touch on earlier in sort of related to this is that when it comes to the economy, obviously the, 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 the Prime Minister of the day has a, has a huge role and influence, but so does the Chancellor. And the relationship between the, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor is, is crucial, the quality of that relationship. And, uh, and I think we once again now have a, a Chancellor and a Prime Minister that work very well uh, together. I think they see eye to eye and all the big issues. Uh, I know that their their spads and advisors are well coordinated. I think that is a is a good thing as well for anyone interested in the healthy economy. And then the the, the third question, um, yeah, technology investment. I mean, I touched on it a bit earlier. I do think it's it's one of the obvious areas where you could invest to save. And I think you could do that any part of, of government. My most recent experience has been in the health department. And uh, again, we, we talked about how crises sometimes accelerate change. During the COVID crisis, we saw the, for understandable reasons, the take up of the uh, NHS app, just to use one example. It went from something like 20% of the population to 80% of the population. And, uh, and so one of the things I wanted to do was how do you keep making it relevant post-pandemic to make sure people keep using that and that you can add more sort of, uh, you know, uh, more um, apps and more uh, things on it to, to, to get people to, to, to keep using it. And that requires investment. And, uh, and, and that, that, that's one example from the health department. There are many examples across government. AI, for example, I think is going to be absolutely revolutionary. I think it's going to touch every aspect of life. I think there are huge improvements in government that can come from AI. I think right now, every single permanent secretary should be asked to bring in experts and do a full review of AI and report by the end of the year about what they're going to do about it and how they're going to take advantage of it for the delivery of that department, right? Things like that. So you've got to have a... You know, a radical approach to this. I think technology can be hugely transformative. There are pockets of good examples in government. I think, on a, again, to use the AI example, uh, the people the Prime Minister has brought in with his task force and things, it's all really good signs. We're having the conference later on this year and things. Um, but uh, I, I think we could do uh, even more. And the last part of your question about how can startups, especially, I think you asked about startups, do more. Um, I think there's been, a, I might be mistaken, I thought there was a review of this. I don't know if it's been implemented, but I thought there was a review of how smaller companies in tech can, can get more involved uh, with government. Uh, but my short answer would be, I think there should be more of a general approach, not left to every department. I think there should be somewhere in government that a small tech company, particularly a British tech company, can go and, 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 and be sort of introduced to other, the right parts of government and sort of handheld through the process rather than just left on its own. Um, I think the, the Bank of England has got a, it's got a very hard uh, task to try and bring inflation under control. It doesn't have, uh, like all central banks, uh, it, it, it only has a couple of tools in the box, right? Interest rates and one or two other tools. And when you have a situation where inflation, like we've seen the recent sort of increases around the world, where a lot of the causes are structural, there's not much any central bank can do. I think I'm right in thinking the, the Bank of England was probably, I think, the first of the world's major central banks uh, to start increasing interest rates. 
Um, and, and obviously we've seen where that has got us now. Um, I think the, the bank should be left as it is, completely independent to make those decisions. Uh, it, it's, it's right that no politician is getting involved in that, so I'm not going to opine even now. I think it would be wrong for me as a former chancellor what they should or should not do. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it, you know, when you look at their recent actions, I think they're rightly taking inflation very, very seriously. Thank you very much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you to everyone uh, for joining us, and I hope you'll join me in thanking Sajid Javid for a really interesting... Thank you. Thank you.